The Torah commands us that we must settle the land of Israel, the promised land. According to some of our sages, this is one of the 613 commandments, is to settle the land of Israel. Not everybody agrees, there's some debate, but it's definitely, everyone agrees that it's required, it's a commandment, and whether it counts as one of the 613 and why or why not is a discussion of its own. But we are not only should encourage or commanded to settle the land of Israel, we are also forbidden from leaving the land of Israel unless absolutely necessary. Then the reason for this is the land of Israel is the land that God gave to our, our people. It is a distinct gift to our people. And as a gift to our people, it is a land that we are supposed to be in. We are supposed to go to. And in addition, there are many commandments that can only be fulfilled in the land of Israel, such as the commandment of separating tithes only uh, can be applied if a produce grown in the land of Israel. We observe the Shemitah, the sabbatical year, which was observed last year, um, is only observed in the land of Israel. Even separating challah, which when we make bread, we must separate from the dough, um, and uh, originally it was given to the Kohen. Today we are no longer ritually pure and we burn it. Um, we still do that outside the land of Israel, but outside the land of Israel it is only a rabbinic command. The biblical command of challah only applies within the land of Israel. So because there are many extra commandments that apply within the land of Israel, because the land of Israel is a special place, a place designated for our people, so a person should try to live in the land of Israel. It is a mitzvah to go to the land of Israel and to settle the land of Israel. It is also a mitzvah for a Jew to buy home, to buy a home or buy land in the land of Israel. That way they are settling it. They own land there. Now, this mitzvah is a little bit different than most commandments. There are generally two types of commandments. Some commandments are an absolute requirement. You must do this. You must, the Jewish men are required to lay the tefillin. You must do it. There are, um, you must hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. You must eat matzah on Passover. These are things that you must do. You must make matzah. Somehow figure out a way to make it, to get hold of it, so that you can eat matzah on Passover. Figure out a way to get a shofar, so that you can blow the shofar. There are other mitzvahs that are not an absolute requirement, but that you something that is encouraged. So it's not a requirement, what we call in Hebrew, chavah, but rather it is an optional commandment, reshut. Some examples of op- optional commandments, when we eat meat, we must slaughter the meat. Now, there's no obligation to slaughter meat if you choose not to eat meat. You can choose to never eat meat and never to slaughter meat or allow other people to slaughter meat for you. It is one of the 613 commandments to slaughter animals. But we are not each required to attempt to do so. And there are similarly many other mitzvot that are not... Most mitzvot are requirements, but there are some that are not absolute requirements. In the same way our sages say, that the mitzvah to settle in the land of Israel, at least today, um, is not an absolute requirement where everybody must drop everything and move immediately to the land of Israel. Um, But rather it is a mitzvah as something that one should do, an ideal um, rather than a requirement. Yet it is 
definitely an ideal that one should move to the land of Israel. Uh, but uh, um, we are, although we are permitted to live outside of Israel, we miss out on fulfilling the mitzvah. If we live outside the land of Israel, we're missing out on this mitzvah. And so while it is true that throughout most of our history, Jews have mostly lived outside the land of Israel. And the reason for that, as we're soon going to see, is because it was very difficult throughout most of our history to live in the land of Israel. There were times when it was absolutely impossible. And even when it was possible, there were times that it was extremely difficult. But even times when it was possible and it wasn't as difficult, most Jews did not go to the land of Israel, did not end up living there um, for the last two and a half thousand years. Israel has not had a majority of the Jewish people living there. Um, and so uh, it is not an absolute requirement, though it is definitely something that is strongly encouraged. And so um, our sages say that although there is no absolute requirement to move to the land of Israel, it is strongly encouraged. And many of our sages did go to the land of Israel, even at times when it was very difficult to go to the land of Israel. They still went to the land of Israel. Many of our sages um, went to the land of Israel. When they arrived there, the Talmud says they would kiss the ground when coming to the land of Israel. And people still do that because the ground itself is holy. It is a holy land. It is a holy place. So they kiss the ground coming. Or the Talmud describes some of our sages as rolling on the ground when they came to the land of Israel to be able to kind of get close to the land. It's a holy land. Our sages further say that someone who lives in the land of Israel, their sins are all forgiven. Of course, when they do teshuva, when they repent, without repentance, God will not forgive our sins. Um, but their sins are forgiven. And if they do teshuva, assured a portion in the world to come. The Torah tells us that the land of Israel, tamid enei Hashem elokecha ba. The eyes of Hashem, your God, are always on the land of Israel. God pays, now God is paying attention to everything and aware of everything that happens, but he pays special attention to the land of Israel and those that are found in the land of Israel. The land of Israel has special protection from Hashem and those that are there gain special protection from Hashem. So it is a very powerful thing, very meaningful thing to live in the land of Israel. In fact, the Talmud even tells us that Avirad de Eretz Yisrael Machkim, the air of the land of Israel makes you extra wise. So much so that the sages in Babylon admitted that the sages in the land of Israel, their contemporaries, were a lot wiser than them because they were living in the land of Israel. And if the Jews that live in the land of Israel are wiser than Jews that live outside of Israel because the, um, the air of the land of Israel makes you wiser. Even someone who cannot live in Israel during their lifetime, it is still important to at least try to be buried in the land of Israel. We know that Jacob at the end of his life, and then his son Joseph at the end of his life asked that their children take them back to the land of Israel and bury them there. Um, and um, the, our sages say that um, uh, those, the, uh, uh, those that are buried in the land of Israel will have an easier time in the future times. We believe that all the dead will come back to life. We once did a class on that, Chiyat HaMetim. 
And so when that happens, it will be a lot easier for those that are in the land, most, but uh, for those that are already buried in the land of Israel. And uh, regardless, the land of, the land of Israel is a holy land, so you're buried within holy land. Even outside of Israel, we have a custom to take dirt from Israel and put it inside the grave, put it on the person who's being buried, on the, uh, on the body, um, even outside of Israel. But one should ideally try to be buried in the land of Israel. Yes? Now, when you're buried in Israel, they just put a cloth around you, right? Yes, burial in Israel is done a little different, but that's a subject of its own. So they, you put the dirt in, in the grave or next to the person? Usually we put it in the coffin. We usually put it in the coffin. The book of Ruth tells us about Elimelech, who left Israel with his two sons during a famine. And not long afterwards, Elimelech and his two sons died. Um, one of those sons was married to Ruth, and Ruth later becomes is the hero, heroine of this story. Um, but they died, the Talmud says, because they should not have left the land of Israel. One should not leave the land of Israel. Um, and our sages say that one who does live in the land of Israel should not leave. Um, now, there are exceptions. One can leave when they run into hardships. We actually find that even Abraham and later Jacob both leave the land of Israel during famine. Now, Elimelech was punished because he was a leader. As a leader, he should not have left his people. But people, the Talmud says, you can leave if you have a valid reason to leave. Firstly, Jews often faced persecution in the land of Israel. So if they face persecution, it's unsafe to live in the land of Israel. You're allowed to leave. The Talmud gives three reasons why one would be, three other reasons one would be allowed to leave Israel. This would be to move out of Israel for financial reasons. If one is finding a hard job, time building a business, or get finding a job in Israel, and they have a job opportunity or business opportunity outside the land of Israel, you can leave the land of Israel for business or job opportunities. You also can leave the land of Israel to study Torah. If there isn't a good school in the land of Israel, but there are great schools outside of Israel, and there were definitely times that that was true, um, you can leave the land of Israel to study Torah. You also can leave the land of Israel to marry. If the girl whom you want to marry, or the boy whom you want to marry, does not live in the land of Israel, that's also a good reason to leave the land of Israel. So for those reasons, you are allowed to leave the land of Israel. Uh, and that would be leaving to settle. Just leaving temporarily, there is some debate among our sages as to whether one who lives in Israel can leave temporarily. For now, for a job, financial reasons, you definitely would be allowed to leave. But um, what about if you just want to leave for vacation? You want to go on vacation to Europe? Or you want to go on vacation to the United States from the land of Israel, can you leave? So it's generally, um, the halacha is that you can leave if you're just leaving for vacation and you intend to come back. Not only, um, but you can, so you can, if you intend to come back, you definitely can leave, but one should not, one who lives in Israel should not move out of Israel unless they absolutely have to. One who lives outside of Israel, on the other hand, is encouraged to visit as much as possible, um, to at least visit Israel, but definitely to also move to the land of Israel. Any questions? Yes? So, like metaphorically, for those of us that are just living here, um, can it be in your heart that you not leave the land of Israel? That intrinsically, you, you would think you never would... That is an excellent question. Or... And then also you, it would be with the concept that you do not want to um, 
leave your people? Should everyone go to the land of Israel? So the Rebbe was often asked this question because there's been a lot of movement, and we'll talk about it soon, of people going to the land of Israel in recent years, especially since the modern state of Israel was created. And uh, many people kind of were inspired to leave, go to the land of Israel. Thankfully, now Israel has a fairly decent economy, and you can live fairly well over there, and um, it's fairly easy to live there. And so, it, I mean, anyone who's inspired should, you know, move to the land of Israel. The Rebbe was often asked by people um, about leaving and going to the land of Israel. And the Rebbe's response was always that you're not allowed to leave your community if you have a leadership role in your community. You're not allowed to leave your community behind. So a rabbi or even a lay leader would not be allowed to leave their community. And the Rebbe told that to many, many people who requested, told the Rebbe they would like to move to Israel. The Rebbe said, you cannot leave your community without a replacement. That would be forbidden to do. Um, And if you have a role, if you have a job, if you have people relying on you, you cannot leave without those people. There were some rabbis that took their whole community with them to Israel. Um, but unless you do that, um, you, you cannot, a leader cannot, definitely cannot leave um, their uh, community and cannot go to the land of Israel. Um, I know someone whose father um, lived in um, Belfast in Northern Ireland in the 1970s. He was the president of the Jewish community there. And in the 1970s, um, he had asked the Rebbe, he wanted to move to Israel, uh, Belfast was not a very safe place at the time when there were when there was a civil war, you know, uh, going on there. And uh, the Rebbe said, "You cannot leave. You're the leader of the community. You're not allowed to leave." So there was someone in many years ago, in the uh, about 150 years ago, there was a fellow in the Russian Empire who wanted to leave to Israel, um, a prominent Jewish rabbi. We don't know who it is, who asked. Um, the Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, known as the Tzemach Tzedek, um, for advice whether he should go move to the land of Israel. And the Rebbe answered him that you cannot leave Israel, but rather make your own home Israel, make your own town Israel. In other words, bring the holiness of Israel to where you are. So we definitely can do that for those that are unable to leave, can definitely bring the holiness of Israel to where they are, as well as everybody today with something that wasn't an option years ago, everyone today can easily visit. Fairly easily. Not everyone, and not easy, but fairly easily we can visit. Yes, Lewis. So recently they say that most Jewish people now live in Israel as opposed to outside. More Jews live in Israel than outside of Israel. I don't think that is correct. That's what, I mean, the Jewish newspapers. Okay. The the newspapers are looking for sensational headlines. Let's just say it's true. Okay. What, What is the significance? I don't know. Is there any significance? I don't know. I don't know. What's the population? What's the Jewish population in Israel right now? I don't know offhand. It's a little over 7 million, I think. And there's supposed to be 6 million Jews throughout the world. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Marla. So, in Israel, um, when I went, I was taught, there were two, two places. One was that Jerusalem was the holiest of Israel, and it was desirable for Jews to live in Jerusalem, as opposed to, say, Tel Aviv or some other place. Is that true? 
Jerusalem is the holiest place in Israel. In fact, um, there is a um, Mishnah uh, um, that goes through the list of holiness. It says, there's the land of Israel, there's the walled cities in Israel, there's the city of Jerusalem, there's the Temple Mount. It goes from level to level of holiness. Um, but I don't believe there's any command to live in Jerusalem over other cities within the land of Israel. If you have a replacement, then you definitely can and should remove yes. to the land of Israel. But if you don't have a replacement, or you don't easily have a replacement, um, or some, then you should not leave your community. I personally fell in love with Israel, particularly Jerusalem. And um, I, I felt something there that I never felt anywhere else. And I, I thought that Yes. So that's the re- so so again, one is not required to move to the land of Israel. It's not an absolute requirement. Um, it's though it's encouraged, and um, for various reasons, people choose not to move to the land of Israel. Yes, that's what we just said before. A person can create Israel within themselves in a, in a, in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, um, by making, bringing holiness to their own town and their own city. Absolutely. And that's something that's greatly encouraged. Um, and yet there is still a mitzvah to move to the land of Israel. So initially Jews entered Israel led by Joshua after the death of Moses. And they then conquered the land from the Canaanites who lived there before them um, and settled the land. And they lived uninterrupted in Israel for some 700 years. But then they suffered a series of foreign captures of the land um, that went along with exiles. They were exiled in various waves uh, from the land of Israel. And over the following 200 years, almost all Jews were exiled or all Jews were exiled from the land of Israel until Israel became totally desolate without any Jews living there whatsoever or really without any people. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't desolate for very long. It was a couple decades. And there were, very, there were short periods when Jews did not live in the land of Israel. I did a class a um, little while back about the history of Jews in the land of Israel, where we went through these, this history uh, more in detail. Um, but Cyrus, some 50 years after the final Jews left Israel, uh, were exiled from Israel, allowed Jews to return. And tens of thousands of Jews did return to the land of Israel. Yet, most Jews at the time, and the, the Jews were then led by um, Zerubbabel and Yehoshua, the high priest. Zerubbabel was the Reish Galuta, was the prince of the exile, a grandson of the house of David. Um, uh, however, most Jews, the vast majority of Jews, chose to remain in Babylon and other places. Some decades later, Ezra led more Jews, another large wave of aliyah, of movement to Israel. Um, Thousands more Jews moved to Israel. And yet, most Jews continued to live outside of Israel. Ezra was very disappointed that most Jews chose the comforts of exile over coming back to the promised land. And so for what was known as the Second Temple period, most Jews continued to live outside of Israel, mostly in Babylonia, uh, but throughout 
what was the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. We spoke about the Persian Empire last week. Um, Jews lived through everywhere, including, of course, in the land of Israel. Um, later, um, towards the end of the Second Temple, um, Israel fell under Roman rule, and the Romans were not very good to the Jews. There was a lot of persecution. And as a result, over a period of about two centuries, the Jewish community in Israel was decimated. First, there was a war that led to the destruction of the temple. A couple decades later, there was a second, even more horrific war between the Romans and the Jews, which led to the death of more Jews and more Jews fleeing. There were periods of persecution, um, one after the next. Until by the um, third century, the Jewish community in Israel had very, very significantly dwindled. It became extremely small. And yet, even during this period, we find people going back to the land of Israel. When the Talmud describes sages that went back to the land of Israel, this was in the third century. when life was very, very difficult for Jews in Israel. Or even in the fourth century, after Rome adopted Christianity, and there were regular anti-Jewish pogroms in Israel. Jews were forbidden from living in Jerusalem, many other places by this time. Uh, and yet, Jews made an effort to go to the land of Israel. Uh, and whenever they could, there were times they were allowed, there were times they weren't allowed. Um, things were very difficult for Jews. By the time the Arabs came in the early 7th century, there were almost no Jews in the land of Israel, but the Arabs opened up Israel again for, the, for Jews. And many Jews then moved back to Israel. There were Jews living at the time in Syria, in Iraq, in Egypt. And many Jews moved to the land of Israel. Um, it didn't turn out to be a huge Jewish community because there was little... Uh, Israel at the time was kind of a backwater area. It had been destroyed after years of wars. Um, the, without Jews, the, um, the Torah says... Um, when speaking of our exile, that when we are in exile, nobody will successfully settle the land. That has been true. When Jews have not settled the land, and no other people have really successfully settled the land, it has never been a densely inhabited land, except when Jews were living there. So um, there's always been very few people there. Um, so during this period, it was somewhat a backwater land, and so it was very poor. There wasn't much business opportunity. Um, much of the coastal areas had become swampy, um, which means that you couldn't farm, and they were also um, centers for disease, because swamps lead to disease. Um, much of the uh, other lands had become desert, um, because they hadn't been tilled for a long time. And so the land of Israel was very was b b mostly desolate. There were small towns and cities. Um, Arabs lived there. They built the Dome of the Rock there. Jews lived there. Christians lived there. Um, for the next 400 years or so, it was still not an easy place to go to, but Jews definitely lived there and visited the land of Israel during this time. Rav Sadja Gaon was there during this time. Others were there during this time. Once the first crusade arrived in Israel in 1096, the Jews were almost all killed in wars, massacres, and it ushered in an almost 200-year period of wars. Multiple crusades, one after the next, wars between Christians and Muslims. Um, the Muslims generally were better to the Jews during this period than the Christians, uh, but both were responsible for massacres. Um, of Jews. And even so, during this period, some of our great sages continued to go to the land of Israel. 
Notable was Rav Yehuda Halevi. Rav Yehuda Halevi was a rabbi from Barcelona who was a great poet. He wrote the famous book Kuzari, one of the most important Jew, books of Jewish philosophy. Um, he wrote many, many poems. He was a great poet. And many of his poems are about his yearning to go and settle in the land of Israel. And uh, Rav Yehuda Levi did, towards the end of his life, leave Spain and traveled across the Mediterranean, making it first, coming first to Egypt, and then make coming, going to the land of Israel. Uh, the story, the way it's told, and we've recently found some evidence for this story, is that he made it, he came to Israel around the year um, 1140. This was when it was under crusader rule, and Jews really were not even allowed in Jerusalem. He arrived, he went by foot from Egypt to Jerusalem, and he arrived, must take in a caravan from Egypt to Gaza. We could picture, we could imagine, it's probably the way he would have done it, and then gone from there, you know, traveled from town to town till he made it to Jerusalem. Um, and uh, he was trampled by a, um, he was trampled on by an Arab riding a horse at the gates of Jerusalem. So he made it to the gates of Jerusalem and he died there as he was entering the gates of Jerusalem. Sad story, but that's what happened. Um, not long after that, um, Maimonides, who had fled Spain as a child, that lived in Morocco and then fled Morocco due to persecution under the Arabs. The Arabs at the time, there was a group called the Almohids that were a um, fanatical Arab group, um, rare in, in Muslim history, but a very fanatical Islamic group that forced Jews to convert to Islam. And so uh, Maimonides flees, and uh, his goal is to reach the land of Israel. And he came to the land of Israel in 1165. Um, during that period... Um, the Crusaders had just been expelled um, from Israel. Um, and um, the Crusaders had just been expelled and um, Arabs had taken control. So Jews were allowed to go to Jerusalem and he did go to Jerusalem. However, the wars had totally decimated the population. Jerusalem was a total, had been totally destroyed in wars, as many other cities in the land of Israel. And so though he spent a little time in Israel, he realized that it was not inhabitable. You could not settle there, um, definitely not support himself over there. And so he moved together with his brother and their families. They moved to Egypt, where he spent the rest of his life outside the land of Israel. However, Maimonides did still have a yearning for the land of Israel and wanted to go back. He died in Egypt. However, he asked before his death, like his ancestors, Jacob, Joseph, that he be brought back to the land of Israel for burial. He was brought back to the land of Israel, and he was buried in Tiberias. Um, Jerusalem was probably not accessible at the time. Um, may have been a crusader, under crusader control, and he was brought to Tiberias and buried over there. Um, sometime later in the 13th century, Rabbi Yechiel of Paris was um, one of the great Baalei Hatosfa, one of the great leaders of um, Ashkenazic Jewry um, in the um, 1200s. Um, the, in the early 1200s, the Talmud was burned in Paris and um, it was forbidden to own any Jewish books. Remember, these were handwritten books. It was forbidden to own any Jewish books in France. Um, and so scholars had a problem. You couldn't study without books. And so Rabbi Yechiel of Paris 
took his entire yeshiva, 300 students, and they all moved to the land of Israel. Um, they were unable to settle in Jerusalem at the time, which again was desolate under crusader rule, and instead they settled in the town of Akko in northern Israel. Akko was a crusader stronghold. It was really the primary center of for Europeans, at least, in Israel during the Crusader period. And so he was able to find refuge in Akko, and um, they settled over there. They weren't there for very long. About a decade later, Akko was captured by the Arabs, and um, it appears they were either forced to leave or forced to flee. Um, so they didn't settle there for very long. Sometime later, <laughs> in 1267... This is just after the Arabs regained control of Israel for the final time. Um, Solomon, the um, sorry, the um, the, um, the Egyptians at the time um, gained control of the land of Israel for the uh, and um, and at that time, twelve sixty seven, the Ramban, Ramosha ben Nachman, who had been expelled from he had been from Girona in Spain. He had been expelled by the Christian king from Aragon, which was this country that Girona was in at the time, within what today is Spain. And he decided to spend the rest of his life in the land of Israel. He was an old man at the time. He came to Jerusalem. He describes as finding in the city of Jerusalem only eight families living there. Because there had been Jewish families. There had been so much persecution, so many wars. Um, and he reestablishes the city of Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish community in Jerusalem. Jews move there slowly, and there is now a new Jewish community um, in the land of Jerusalem. Um, small, um, Israel is still a backwater. It's now more stable than it had been previously during the almost 200 years of Crusader Wars. However, um, it is still very, it's hard to go and there's, um, there's, there, uh, there isn't uh, financial resources there. Um, there isn't much financially for people to live there. Um, there also isn't, it's very, it's a backwater place. There aren't a lot of people living there. And um, the Jews and the Christians and Muslims living there also weren't very nice to the Jews. Um, and yet the Jewish community continued to grow from that period on. There was a continue from the mid 1200s, there was a continuous Jewish community in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Israel. Um, Moving forward, after the exile of Jews from Spain in 1492, many of the exiles chose to move to the land of Israel. In the early 1500s, the Ottoman Empire, which had opened its empire to the Jewish exiles, um, conquered Syria and um, Israel, um, and eventually Egypt. And, um, they, and Jews were now able to move to the land of Israel. Um, not long after, in 1561... Um, there was a great Jewish financier, one of the great, the greatest Jewish financier of his day, and uh, one of the greatest of all times, known as Dan Yosef Nasi, um, and uh, he was elevated as a duke within the Ottoman Empire because of his great power and um, and wealth, and he was appointed as a, the governor of Tiberias um, on the um, Lake of the Galilee. And he was then able to, he reestablished the city of Tiberias, which had been an ancient Roman town on the Galilee, and uh, encouraged Jews to move there and um, built vi Jewish villages around the Tiberias area. It was at this time, really a little before in the early 1500s, that uh, the city of Tzfat, 
which is pretty cl- we're a little bit north of Tiberias and just south of Damascus, which, has al- which had always been a major metropolitan, a major city, um, became a center for, um, for exiles from Spain. And many, many Jews moved to Tzvat, particularly Jewish sages moved to Tzvat. Many great Jewish leaders, Rav Yosef Karo, the Ariza, Rav Yitzchak Luria, Lori, and many, many other great Jewish sages lived in, mostly Sephardic, lived in um, Safad at this time. There were also many in Jerusalem. The rabbi in Jerusalem at the time was Rabbi Rabbeinu Levi ben Chaviv. Um, so there were some, and so uh, during this time, Israel really saw a renaissance. It saw a great growth um, from the Spanish exiles. Um, at the same time, there was more a movement, especially in, in the um, in the next century, there was a movement of Ashkenazic Jews to come to Israel. Um, in 1621, Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz, who was the chief rabbi of Prague and probably the most prominent Ashkenazic rabbi of his day, moved to the land of Israel, um, settling in the city of Tzfat, with many Jews following him. Um, not long after, there was a um, German sage, Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid, who led a group of Jews from Germany um, in the early 1700s to uh, move to Jerusalem as well. They built what became known as the Churva, um, or the primary synagogue in the old city. Um, it's been destroyed and rebuilt many times over, but it stands today. It was just recently, in the last two decades, rebuilt again. Um, but it stands in the old city in Jerusalem. It's the um, kind of main synagogue of the old city of Jerusalem and still, still there today. Um, in moving forward to more modern times, in 1777, a group of Hasidim, students of the Baal Shem Tov, Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, led by Reb Mendel of Vitebsk, who was a great Hasidic master, a great Hasidic leader, led a group of some 300 families to move to the land of Israel. And so they all moved to the land of Israel, this very, very large group, and they settled in the, they, uh, and this very large group settled in the town of Tiberias in northern Israel. Um, this group of Hasidim. And this really began a new wave of Ashkenazic Jews, but also Sephardic Jews from all over, who really rebuilt Israel. Before 1777, Israel had a very, very tiny community, um, probably numbering in the low thousands. Remember, the whole population of Israel was probably in the low tens of thousands. But starting from 1777, we see Jews coming in very, very large numbers to the land of Israel, thousands each year. And um, very quickly, by the early 1800s, there was already a Jewish majority in the land of Israel. Um, So they had gone from being, remember, there weren't that many people altogether in the land of Israel. By the early early 1800s, by 1850, when we have a, we actually have a, we have censuses from that period. There's definitely a Jewish majority. But even decades earlier, there was probably already a Jewish majority by that stage. Um, not long afterwards, 1808, a group of students of the Vilna Gaon, who was a great um, leader, Jewish leader from Vilna. Um, so the group Lithuanian Jews settled, a very large group settled in the land of Israel. These Jews settled in Jerusalem. Uh, building the rebuilding the Ashkenazic community in Jerusalem. Until that time, there was no Ashkenazic community in Jerusalem. And throughout the 19th century, large groups of Jews from Eastern Europe, from Western Europe, Central Europe, from um, 
Iran, from Iraq, from Morocco, from Tunisia, from various, from Yemen, from various different places, moved to the land of Israel, building communities in um, throughout the land of Israel. Most of the Jews that come to the land of Israel in the 19th century settle in four cities. They settled in um, they uh, they settled in Jerusalem, in Tiberias, Tzvat, and Hebron. They settle mostly in these four cities. There are Jews in some other towns, not a lot, but there are very there are tiny communities in other towns. Um, but most Jews are settling in these four cities. These four cities each gain a very large Jewish majority very quickly, um, uh, by and large, and especially Jerusalem. But most Jews are settling in these cities because, um, and they become kind of the primarily primary Jewish cities. Most Jews that were living, though, in Israel at the time, there was no industry to speak of in the land of Israel, very, very little. Um, there were some farms, but the farms were owned by Arabs. Jews weren't really working the farms. There was no other industry, um, and a little printing, not much. Most Jews were supported by what was known as the kolel system, where Jews in the diaspora would raise funds and send money to support their communities in the land of Israel. So Ukrainian Jews would send money for Ukrainian Jews in Israel. Lithuanian Jews would send for Lithuanian Jews in Israel. Polish Jews for Polish Jews in Israel. Hungarian Jews for Hungarian Jews in Israel. Um, Dutch Jews for Dutch Jews in Israel. Each community um, had their own... um, each community had their own um, funds to support the Jews in Israel. There were various attempts to build industries in the land of Israel. Um, we, when we spoke a couple months ago about uh, Moses Montefiore, who was very involved in the Jewish community in Israel throughout the 19th century, he lived a very long life. Um, he worked very hard to build industries in the land of Israel, built a windmill, tried to build other industries in the land of Israel um, to give people... Um, kind of independence to be able to settle there. Um, but it really wasn't until 1882 when a new organization called Chovvetzion, um, Lovers of Zion, was built in the Russian Empire. And this was, 1880s was a time when Jews were really, really suffering in the Russian Empire and began to move in very, very large numbers to other countries. They came to the United States, to Western Europe, they went even to Australia, South Africa, during this period, and there was a movement of Jews to go back to the land of Israel. Um, and so the idea was that they should f- establish farms in the land of Israel. They managed to get the Rothschild family originally to support these farms um, and pay kind of the, the, to fund them, the initial funding for the farms. Um, and they gradually began to build farms in the land of Israel. They drained swamps. Um, it was very, very hard work, very, very difficult, um, very dangerous because there was a lot of... Um, uh, because there was a lot of disease from the swamps. Um, and yet they, they tried some, they built lots of towns, and lots of these original farming towns are today big cities in the land of Israel, cities, towns like Petach Tikva and Rishon Letzion, right, were originally farming towns that became big cities. Um, and so Jews began to come in, not long afterwards, the Zionist movement was founded in the late 1890s, um, and Jews began to come to Israel in much, much larger numbers, particularly Ashkenazi Jews. At this time, it also became much easier to visit the land of Israel. Until then, traveling to the land of Israel would have been an extremely, extremely difficult task. But now that there were steamboats and a Jew from Russia, essentially, could go to the port of Odessa on the Black Sea 
and they could take a steamboat straight from Odessa, straight to Jaffa, Jaffa, the, um, the port, the, what was then the primary port in Israel, um, and you could get boats, and it would go through, um, through um, Istanbul, uh, but you could take a boat straight from Odessa to Yafo, um, and uh, it, was, it didn't take that long, maybe a week by steamboat, um, not even. And so it was something that anyone could do. I mean, it was, wasn't cheap, but you, know, you were no longer you know, traveling from town to town, village to village, from the horse to the boat, back to the horse. It wasn't you know, that kind of long, difficult travel they, they used to do. Anyone with, with a little bit of money was able to visit Israel. It was something that was now possible. And people were doing that more and more, visiting and returning to Israel. Uh, by the late 1890s, there were already trains. You could get a train. Um, there's no train. You could get a train to uh, Yafo by taking, you could take, there was a whole train system around Europe. You could get a train to Istanbul. Um, Going through, you know, from, from Russia, from Western Europe, you could go take a train to Istanbul, and from Istanbul there were trains um, going all the way down to Yafo. So it was a fairly, it was, became much easier to travel, and many people were now visiting the land of Israel, not just going there to settle, but there was a possibility to visit and to then leave. Um, Jews continued to come to Israel in very large numbers. Um, cities were built, villages became cities, more farming communities were built. Um, 1914, World War I broke out, which made it virtually impossible to travel. So for a couple of years, Jews could not travel. After that, um, the British took over the land of Israel. At first, it was open aliyah. Anyone who wanted can move to the land. Any Jew could move to the land of Israel. They shut that pretty quickly, within a couple of years, um, due to Arab complaints. And so Jews were no longer able to go in large numbers into the land of Israel. Um, it opened briefly. It became easier, at least, to go to the land of Israel in the late 1920s, early 1930s till 1936. During that time, um, with the rise of Nazism in Germany, most German Jews were expelled from Germany, and most of them ended up going to the land of Israel. Um, the, the German Jews were... Um, cosmopolitan and um, well-educated with many with great skills and they came they built universities they built industries there and they really helped develop the land uh, throughout this time Jews from Eastern Europe and from the Middle East were coming as well uh, many Jews were coming to the land of Israel um, in uh, 1936 the British essentially stopped almost all um, immigration to the land of Israel and after that there was only trickle of immigration to Israel visiting Israel though was still possible visiting Israel if you had a visa with a return ticket by boat or by train you definitely could visit and it was a time when Jews were wealthier and were definitely able to visit and definitely did visit even from the United States when you take a boat right across to the land of Israel there were even yeshivas where you know, students from Europe from Israel from, uh, from the United States would go study in the land of Israel. Um, the, um, in 1948, Israel, uh, there was, by the way, during this period, a lot of illegal immigration. A lot of Jews came illegally, sneaking into the land, either on visas without leaving, um, or sneaking um, with boats that kind of you know, docked secretly um, in the middle of the night. Um, or crossing the border by foot, going to Syria and crossing the border by foot, Jews snuck into the land in very significant numbers during this period. In 1948, Israel was established as a state, and now any Jew who wanted was able to move to the land of Israel. Um, almost immediately, um, Jewish refugees in Europe, refugees from World War II, um, moved to Israel 
a very, very large, almost all of them moved to Israel, um, Jews from Arab lands where they had been expelled after the creation of the state, moved to the land of Israel. And the next three years, about three million Jews moved to the land of Israel in the next couple of years after, um, after the creation of the state of Israel. Um, and very, uh, so there was a very, very large movement to the land of Israel. Um, and so, um, uh, so Jews continued to move to the land of Israel, continued to do so throughout. After 1967, um, the euphoria of the Six-Day War led to many more Jews wanting to move to the land of Israel. It also became a lot easier. Um, by the 1970s, there were flights, direct flights to Israel. You, can e you could easily fly or flights through Europe. You could easily fly to Israel. Flights became much cheaper. You no longer needed to take a boat to go. Um, and it became fairly easy to go. It also became fairly easy to visit the land of Israel. And Jews began to visit the land of Israel in even greater and greater numbers. Um, in the 1950s, American Jews were already visiting Israel. By then, you had to do it by boat. That was the only way to go. That was the only way to visit in the 1950s. But there were many American Jews that went um, to visit. Uh, nowhere near as large numbers as came later. Um, and uh, definitely many Jews can continue to go to the land of Israel. Um, in the last 20 years, it's become very easy to visit. Flights are cheap. There's relatively cheap. Nothing's cheap. Um, there are direct flights. It's become very, very easy to visit the land of Israel. Um, and so it remains an ideal to firstly live in the land of Israel. Um, for those that are unable or unwilling to move to the land of Israel... Um, because they have commitments here, they have jobs here, they have family here. Um, it's possible to get a job in Israel, but it's not easy, and it's probably not a good idea to move without something lined up for a job, or if you're retired, um, without everything set. Um, so um, for those that do live here, firstly, we can make the land of Israel here, making our own place more spiritual. Um, but also, we can make an effort to visit the land of Israel, experience the holiness of the land. If you have not yet visited the land of Israel, I encourage you to do so. And if you have visited the land of Israel, I encourage you to do it again. And we will be doing that um, in just a couple hours. Um, and uh, it's a very powerful thing, a very powerful experience to visit the land of Israel. And we pray for the coming of Moshiach. When Moshiach arrives very soon, then we will all, one of the um, key activities, uh, things that Moshiach will do will be to gather the exiles from the four corners of the earth and we will all go back to the land of Israel and settle over there.